Well, good morning. I'm glad you guys are here. It's a joy for me to be here. We get to hang out together and study God's Word and try and learn what He's teaching us and really go out and apply it throughout the week. It's not just about this time here. So I'm very, very glad we get together to do this. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, or you have the new Cape Bible Chapel app, which has an e-Bible on it, just a little promo there, grab your Bible. Let's meet together in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first nine verses there today. And I'm going to start out by painting some really big, broad, general brushstrokes. And sometimes it's kind of bad to make really sweeping generalizations like that, to, to stereotype or make assumptions. So I want to go on record here early and say I know this can be tricky, but sometimes it's really helpful if you want to address an issue or a situation to try and put people into these broad kind of categories. If you don't know someone at all and you want to learn something about them so you can start talking, a lot of times you'll do that. I don't even know if you're aware of that. We'll, we'll put them into categories. You can ask questions like this one. Hey, are you a dog person or a cat person? And most folks will fall into one of those. I mean, they may stonewall and say, well, I'm neither. I'm a reptile person. You know, something unusual. But, but that's a way that you can get to know somebody a little bit. Maybe ask this when you're at a barbecue this summer. You don't know somebody. You walk up, hey, are you a hot dog guy or are you a hamburger guy? And most folks will fall into one of those categories. It just kind of helps out. Hey, do you prefer the beach or do you like the mountain? Are you an iPhone person or do you like the Android? You know? Do you like the toilet paper to come over the top of the roll or under the roll? You know? Those are important questions. And, and you can find out a little bit about somebody by, just by putting them in those broad categories. If you're a sports fan and you get rivalries, I think you'll understand this one. I've seen these bumper stickers. Hey, I'm a fan of two teams, Notre Dame and whoever's playing Michigan because they're big rivals. I only root for the Red Sox and whoever's crushing the Yankees. And so you, so you get these broad categories. I think we kind of understand that. Well, here's my big generalization. Kind of since the beginning of time, across cultures, there's been kind of two camps about life in general, about why we're on this planet, about why we exist, about how it's all going to play out. It's kind of commonly assumed by all cultures that there's this human life that we lead. We understand that. And then there's something bigger. There's some kind of spiritual existence. Not everybody calls it God. Not even everybody calls it a God. But they have some kind of language for it, spirits or shaman or whatever it is. And so the notion is, for folks who ascribe to that notion, there's man and then there's something bigger, something spiritual, then there's this widely held recognition that there's a difference. And there's some kind of chasm between those two things. There's a big separation between man and this higher power, whatever you want to call it. Now, again, I'm, I'm using the big brushstrokes here, but, but if we end up in those two camps, then we've got to figure out a way to reconcile that. How do we address that chasm between people and this spiritual existence? And if you're with me this far, then you know there's really only two camps there, two camps that would help us reconcile that gap. How could man be seen as pleasing in this higher power sight? And here's your two big camps just about everybody fits in. It's either by faith, or by works. You could be reconciled to God or some higher power, or whatever, by the stuff that you do. You could try to earn it, or you could just do it by faith. I read an incredibly troubling book while I was in seminary called The Spirit of the Rainforest, and it was gruesome. I remember it was graphic. It was so graphic, there was a paper assigned to it, and you could opt out. You could have chosen to read another book and write a different paper if this book was too much for you. Because the things that these people did was the accounts of the Yanomamo tribe in the Amazon. And they had to do all these things to earn favor with their God. It was these spirits. 
They slaughtered each other. The most troubling part of the book, they, they slaughtered little children. They would do these hallucinogenic drugs so they could visit the spirits. These people were in the works camp. <laughs> they were trying to do things to earn favor with God. Well, it, it begs the question, do we have to be good enough or weird enough or obedient enough or anything enough to be right with God? Or does that righteousness come through faith alone? And here's where the generalizations have to stop. Because those two camps, faith and works, they don't allow any mingling. <laughs> they don't play well together. There's no crossover there. You either have a faith-based approach or a works-based approach. Both are trying to address the same issue. How do we bridge that gap between man and God? But they're doing it in entirely different ways. So let's downshift here a little bit for our purpose. We're sitting here in a local church in the United States. Let's just today deal with this notion of the God of the Bible and his creation. Let's say we're a people and we recognize there's a big gap between us and God. There's a big need there. So here's the question. Can we address that neediness on our own? Could, could we somehow bridge the gap? Can we fix that problem? Could we read enough self-help books or do some kind of extreme makeover to where we'd be pleasing in God's sight? And if we think that we can, then that's 100% in opposition to what the Scripture teaches. Faith and works are really 100% diametrically opposed. The Scriptures teach us we can't put our trust in works as if we could somehow fix ourselves. We can only put our trust in the work of Jesus Christ. We can have faith in him. And this is what Paul is teaching to these churches in Galatia. It's this group of folks he had spent a lot of time with. He loves them. He wants the best for them, but he knows they're struggling because they're, they're messed up on these camps. They think they can have faith and then add in some works, and that'll be better. Last summer, you might remember, we preached through the book of Habakkuk. And the key verse was Habakkuk 2.4. It says, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So this is not a new concept that Paul's trying to teach here in Galatia. We're actually going to see from the Old Testament example he uses later in this passage. This isn't new, but practically, even though it's not new, we still struggle with this today here on earth. I, I bet you know lots of people who really still mess this up. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to see any of those man-on-the-street surveys that, like, Christian organizations will do. They'll send a guy out with a microphone, and he'll, he'll ask some questions to try and put people in these broad camps. And sometimes you watch them, and, and on the surface it seems a little funny, but real honestly, it's sad. It's just kind of tragic. Because this guy or this girl will go out, and they'll try and put people into two camps, but they'll only ask the one side. They'll normally ask this question, are you a Christian? And most people respond, yeah, I'm a Christian, because they don't want to put themselves in the other camp right off the bat. But then they'll normally ask this follow-up question, well, okay, how do you become a Christian? And if you've seen these, you know what's usually, big brush stroke here, the number one answer. Well, I believe in God, and I'm a good person. And sometimes they'll even leave that first part out. I'm just a good person. We talked about this at length a few weeks ago. That's not a both-and question. <laughs> to be reconciled with God, to receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith in God, we can't work for it. Faith and works don't go hand in hand there. Now, for sanctification, yes. Once someone is a Christ follower, then those two camps do play well together. But for salvation, it's not a both-and question. It can't be both faith and works. 
Picture it this way. God's not sitting up in heaven looking down and choosing sides for kickball. Ooh, I want James on my team. Give me Jeremy and DT and Rodney and I'll take Deb. Oh, they are so good. It's not the way it works. Because if that was the deal, what question would we be stuck with? Well, how good do I have to be? How good is good enough? I think I might be better than Rodney, but I don't think I'm as good as Sean. And so what am I going to do? How good is good enough? I'm not really sure. Do we think that's how God does it? Do we want to trust in our own ability to come into a saving relationship with God? Do we want to work hard enough to be pleasing to him? Or do we just want to trust what God has done in Jesus? That's what Paul's addressing here in Galatians chapter 3. And again, it's to these people he loves. And he loves them so much that he's willing to get in their face a little bit. He says some harsh things, some kind of jarring things to try and get their attention. And that's okay because he really wants to challenge their understanding of faith and works. He wants to open their eyes to this false teaching that's infiltrated their ranks. And so start with me there in verse 1. And over these first five verses, you're going to see Paul ask six questions to challenge their understanding. And then he's going to close with this one big example that we can all learn from. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul writes this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Just for the record, you foolish Galatians, that's not a compliment. That's not some cool way of saying, you guys are so cool, you're so hip. No, he's calling them out. He's pretty harsh because he's saying he loves these people. He cares for them. Now, try to go there. If if you have a toddler, this will be easier if you've ever had one. If you don't, this is going to be harder. But, But what if you had a little child, you had a toddler, and you were out on vacation with them? And say you go to the Grand Canyon, and you're standing there at the Grand Canyon, and you're looking at the beautiful view, and then all of a sudden you notice, hey, where's my kid? And you see your kid wandering along over on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Well, now what would you do? Would you go, oh, that is so cute. Would you walk over and go, man, you're so fast. How did you get away from me, you little rascal? Or would you run over there as quick as you can and grab him and say, no, it's dangerous. What are you thinking? Paul's not going for encouraging here to the Galatians. He's rebuking them. He's trying hard to get their attention. That's what we want to do. And so he asks his first question here, who has bewitched you? And I know we live in the real world, but take a look real quick at this quick little clip from the cartoon world, and it should give us an idea of what he's trying to do here. Show that clip for me. See, that other guy tried to warn her. (laughs) He was yelling, this is not going to go well. This is what Paul's trying to do to the Galatians. They're locked in on this false teaching. They're They're like in a tractor beam. They're being sucked in. And he uses the word, he says, they're being bewitched. He means they're being tricked. That's what the bug light does to bugs. It tricks them. They're tricked into following something that will end badly for them, and that's Paul's fear for the Galatians. And the wording there in verse 1, it might be a little confusing because Paul makes it sound like these folks have literally seen Jesus crucified. I think that's really, really doubtful, honestly, that his audience there in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, would have actually been present at the crucifixion. I think what Paul really means here is they'd heard the true gospel. 
Jesus Christ crucified is the heart of the gospel. They were saved by the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And so now that they're getting sucked towards this bug light, Paul's saying it's like you're throwing away the crucifixion. You're throwing away Christ's work on the cross. That's a big mistake. So Paul's willing to yell at them a little bit here to get their attention. And now maybe this has happened to you. Maybe it was when you were a kid. Maybe it was this week. I don't know. But, but somebody may call you a fool if you're doing something foolish. That's always going to sting a little bit. But real honestly, we'll take it better from people who love us. And that's where Paul is. And he's just getting started here. His second question is pretty pointed as well. Look at verse 2. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, that's an encouraging verse to me when Paul says stuff like that because I realize, man, how the Holy Spirit breathes the Bible into people, it's just like we talk. Because you know this is hyperbole. This is an intentional exaggeration. Clearly, Paul wants to know more than just this one thing. This is the second of what is going to be six questions for him. But, but sometimes we talk like this. I know I do. Sometimes you paint yourself in a corner with your words. I've done this before with my own kids. I'm trying to help them see here's the best way to do something. This would be the best thing for you. And they're arguing with me. They just don't seem to understand the reasoning. And so I'll say something like, that's it, not, not anything more. I don't want to hear another word from you. And then I'll go to them and say, what were you thinking? We can't say those two things together because I just told him, I don't want to hear another thing from you, but tell me what you're thinking. This is what Paul does. He's all worked up. And, and so what he wants him to do is understand the most important thing. The heart of his defense is this. So he asks this question, and basically what he's saying is, think back. Where were you when you had your Jesus event? Not, not so much the physical location, but what circumstances were you in when God found you? And at the core of that question is, when God drew you to himself, did that happen? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by doing something? Or simply because you heard the gospel and you placed your faith in Jesus, you believed in him? Which one was it? Now, I can't speak personally for you guys. I can only do that for me. But I remember where I was when God opened my eyes to the gospel. And I was in a bad place. I was just full on trying to find joy in life and stuff. I wasn't worried about trying to please God at all. Now, if somebody had come up with a microphone and asked me the question, I would have said I was a Christian. I would have said I was a good person because I, I thought I had some ethics. They weren't enough to keep me from drinking and lying and stealing and, and sleeping around and doing bad things, but, but I was a good person by comparison. Now, I had to find some folks pretty low on the food chain <laughs> to compare myself with to feel good about that, but, but I found some. If I do an honest assessment, if I just look back at that time, do I think God would have picked me for his kickball team? I mean, I can imagine how that conversation would have gone. Hey, here's the deal, James. I want you on my team. You're going to have to put down the bottle. You're going to have to stop lying and cheating and stealing in your business. And, and you've got to do something about your anger issues. And you need to leave women alone for a while. And you need to clean up your language. And that's a good list to start with. James, take care of all those things and then come back in and check in with me and then I'll save you. No, <laughs> that's not what happened at all. He just saved me. In the midst of all that junk, he saved me because of my faith in Jesus, because of my response to the gospel. I didn't earn it. With a resume like mine, it's obvious I couldn't have earned it. But here's the deal about your resume. It wouldn't matter. What if your resume was, I haven't missed a week of church in 13 years. 
I, I volunteer at a homeless shelter. I lead kids worship every week. Is that going to be good enough because of what I've done? No. We can't work our way to salvation. And here's the reality of it. It was just as real for the church in Galatia as it is for us today. God comes in and saves us wherever we are, whether we're at our very worst, whether we're at our very best, he's the one who does it. And Paul's saying that's what we need to remember. That's the most important thing. Now Paul asks his third question. It's brief and blunt as well. It's there at the start of verse 3. It's just four words. Are you so foolish? That's kind of a harsh question. <laughs> I don't know that we need a lot of explanation there, but, but sometimes this is the question. Have you lost your mind? What are you thinking? And if it seems like Paul's too harsh there, well, then just think about the application. What if somebody would come up to you and say, hey, you need to hear about this incredible new thing that I'm going to add to Christ's work on the cross. It's so creative. It's just terribly innovative. Here's what it is. It's called the poverty gospel. So you just need to have faith in Jesus and sell your house and move to Africa and live in a grass hut. What would your response be? I hope it would be something like this. I hope it would be, you're nuts. Are you so foolish that you want to try and add something to the grace of God? It wouldn't matter even if it was a good-sounding thing. Poverty gospel sounds kind of good. It doesn't matter if you're, you're adding obedience to the law. It really doesn't matter. It's foolish to try to add to grace. And if we try and do it, it proves we don't understand grace. Next question, number four, it's the rest of verse three. Paul asks this, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul gives away to the correct answer to the second question he asked. Okay, we didn't work for our salvation. God did it by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit when we respond in faith. Now he asks this tricky question. This one's kind of deep. We've covered this one a little bit in the first two chapters, if you've been with us. Joining God where he's at work in our lives, this idea of growing in our maturity, in our Christ-likeness, it's something we're supposed to do. It's called sanctification, and we've said it's a process. But here's the reality on it. As we're looking at this, it can be a slow process. So sometimes it's really hard to gauge the growth. And we need to understand, even when we see the growth, we didn't do it. We didn't cause it. We don't grow through our own strength. I've observed that many of you who know me and my family well seem to delight in coming to tell me that my boy who just turned 14 on Friday is about two inches taller than me. You seem to love to come tell me that like I hadn't noticed. Oh, James, he towers over you. Thanks, thanks, I get that. But here's the deal. It happened over time, and I kind of missed it. It was kind of weird because I remember the first time it really hit me, we took our Christmas picture together. Well, family photo, and, and I get it, and, and he's literally towering over me. I'm like, when did that happen? Because I didn't see him growing. And even if you went to Carson, here's the deal. He didn't feel himself growing, but over time, he's taller. Well, the process of God perfecting us works like that. We can join him in the process for sure. I mean, Carson eats and sleeps and works out. He does that kind of stuff, but he doesn't cause himself to grow. That part is all God. We probably notice our spiritual maturity in the same way. Maybe we've walked with Christ for a long time, and then all of a sudden, a situation presents itself. And what do you know? We respond to it wisely. We desire to serve. We desire to die to ourselves. We desire for God to get all the glory in our decision. And then we do that and we ask, hey, did I do that? What, what just happened there? 
I pray that when things like that happen to you, you won't respond the way I often do in the evaluation phase. Sometimes I'll step back and go, wow, I'm brilliant. <laughs> Man, did you see what I did there? That, I'm so smart. I pray that doesn't happen to you. Because when I, when I pull back the next step, I realize everything that's happened to me is by God's grace. I've been way too quick to take credit for my own growth and my own maturity, and I don't deserve any of the credit there. Every good thing that's happened in my life, all the things that I've learned, all the sin that's been overcome, all the blessings and the kindness I've received, all the things I've been forgiven for, do I really think I did that? It wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit in me. And that's what Paul's trying to get these people in Galatia to understand. And he says, if you get that, if you understand that, then here's the question, why would you walk away from that reality and trade it in for this idea that you could keep the law in order to grow? Somehow you could obey the law to be perfected. It's foolish. Then Paul asks his fifth question in verse 5. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, Paul's a guy who knew a little bit about persecution. (laughs) He used to do it to others. And then for sure, after his eyes were opened on the Damascus Road, he suffered more than his fair share of it. When he and Barnabas were planting the churches that he's writing to, they were horribly persecuted sharing the true gospel on that journey paul was nearly stoned to death he was chased out of towns he gets persecution and here's the deal he's okay with it he just doesn't want it to be for nothing and so he's told these people in galatia before that when they choose to follow christ they will be persecuted it's part of the deal look at acts chapter 14 verse 22 we'll have these on the screen this is when paul and barnabas are retracing their steps from that first journey and they specifically tell the galatians this Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. See, Paul talks about persecution in the same way that Jesus talks about it. He doesn't talk about it the way we seem to want to deal with it. I'll lump myself in there, too. I I, I get this. A lot of times for us, persecution and tribulations and trials, those are things we try to avoid. We try to solve them or sidestep them in some way. But Jesus and Paul view persecution differently. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, here's what Jesus teaches. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me, because of Jesus. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not the most popular message to teach, is it? but it sure does blow that prosperity gospel out of the water. We can't come and tell people, hey, just believe in Jesus and your life will be easier because we see that's not the deal. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Prosperity gospel doesn't stand up to the biblical test of correlation because we're supposed to rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted. And I'm saying for sure the folks in Galatia were being persecuted. This Judaizer group, these folks were coming in and preaching a false gospel. And and Galatians who believed in the true gospel, they were being persecuted. They were suffering. Well, if all of a sudden, Paul says, if they would cave in and embrace this false gospel, all that persecution would have been in vain. They wouldn't have the opportunity to rejoice over their trials. Finally, Paul's last question, the sixth one, is in verse 5. He wraps all the questions up by asking this. So then, 
Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Start to see his theme here. Paul wonders, why do you think God shows up and works miracles among you? Why do you think the Holy Spirit provides everything you have, and I mean everything, your spouse, your children, even the job you have to provide for yourself, everything you have comes from him. Why does God save people? Why does he show up in these incredible, miraculous ways? Is it because we work hard? Or is it because we respond to faith in him? That's a a great question. That's the core of that question. Does God do those things because we're great people or because he's a great God? I'm pretty sure we know the answer to that one. So Paul smacks the Galatians around a little bit because he loves them. And he really kind of answers his own questions. But he's trying to get them to, to answer the most important question. Do we understand grace? Do we get that we can't earn it? We can't work for it. We can't justify our way to it. We can't compare ourselves to it. God's the one who draws us to himself. And it's not because any one of us is more especially lovable than another. When God's picking his kickball team, he doesn't pick Jeff or Pastor Andy because those guys are faster than me, although that's certainly true. We both get picked because God provided the way for us to both make the team by sending his son to make the way. And then anyone who responds to that grace by faith, they can make the team. It's the only way anybody makes the team. So now in verses 6 to 9, Paul gives us an example that backs up everything he's been teaching. This illustrates all the correct answers to his six-question test. And I think it's really intentional. So let's walk through this last part together. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. It says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. He's a believer. He starts out by quoting Genesis 15, 6. So we know Paul's talking about Father Abraham, not some guy named Abraham who lived in Iconium. And Abraham is a great example to use to illustrate how this debate between faith and works plays out. But I think there's a way the Judaizers might have tried to spin the life of Abraham. And again, I think they probably have. So that could be why Paul uses him as an example, because Abraham would have been well known to the Judaizers. So let's ask those common questions. What do we know about Abraham from the Bible? Well, he's characterized as a guy with tremendous obedience. God shows up in his life back when he's Abram, and he asks him a really tough question. He says, hey, get all your stuff. You need to come with me. Gather all your things. I'm going to have you live in a new place. And what would be the question we would all ask? Hey, where are we going? And God says, I'll tell you when we get there. <laughs> How would you do on that test? God came up to you or me today, said, hey, gather all your stuff. Get your family. Let's go. And I'd say, where are we going? And he'd say, that's for me to know and you to find out. Would we be obedient? Would we show that kind of obedience in that situation? Abram does. He obeys God. And so later in his story, he's in his late, late 90s. God says, you're going to have a son. About 20 or 30 years after that, God says, take that son that I gave you late in your life, that son you love, name is Isaac, 
go and sacrifice him on the top of Mount Moriah. And hopefully we know that story. Abraham doesn't end up having to do it. He just had to be willing to do it. He had to be obedient, and he was. So if there's a good test case for obedience in the Old Testament, it's Abraham, right? But Paul's just said Abraham wasn't saved by his obedience. He believed God, and that's what resulted in his salvation. Abraham had faith in the one to come, in the promise that was given to him by God basically three different times. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, in Genesis 18, 18, and 22, 18. And so Paul quotes these verses here, that promise, says all the nations will be blessed through you. So God has said, and Paul is teaching here, that everybody who responds with faith in Jesus will be blessed along with Father Abraham. He's, he's the father of faith. And there's confirmation of this in the Gospels from Jesus himself in John chapter 8 and verse 56, where Jesus explains, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, to see Jesus' day, and he saw it and was glad. So Abraham saw Christ's day. What does that mean? This is an important concept, so let's walk through this. And Paul covers this in detail in the book of Romans. But the case he's making to the churches in Galatia is that Abraham was a guy who had faith in God. Now, he was obedient to the plan. He did what God asked him to do, but it was because of the faith, not the other way around. Abraham didn't obey these hard things God asked him to do, and then God said, wow, that guy's awesome. I really need him on my team. Abraham, I'm going to give you this righteousness because you're such an obedient guy. No. The faith resulted in the obedience, not the other way around. And even though he's an Old Testament saint, Abraham had faith in Jesus. He had faith in what God was going to do. If you look in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins and the sins of those in the past. Now, propitiation is just a big word that means it's something that satisfies the wrath of God. Well, Christ's death on the cross satisfied the anger that God has over sin. And then Christ's death and burial and resurrection did that for all the sins we'll ever ask to be forgiven of, past, present, and our future sins. So just like our future sins are covered because of Christ's death and burial and resurrection, well, then it stands to reason the sins of Noah and Moses and David and Abraham, all those Old Testament saints, they're also forgiven by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So those guys have righteousness credited to them by faith, just like you and I do. So Paul says you've got to get that. You've got to be sure it's those who have faith, not obedience, who are the sons of Abraham. And one of the reasons he says this, I think, is because one of the big arguments for all the first century Jewish people, we've mentioned this before, is that they thought they were going to be okay simply because they were Jewish, simply because they were ethnically God's chosen people. And Paul doesn't want the Galatians to get confused here and think, okay, well, what, what I really need to do is be, be like Abraham, and that'll save us. Because the Judaizers were probably teaching something like that. They might have come through and made that case. Okay, to be right with God, here's what you got to do. You got to be like Abraham. Well, Abraham was a Jew, and he was circumcised, and he obeyed God's commands. So if you just do those things, you're good. You need to have faith in Jesus and do these things that Abraham did. But if we do that, that's foolish because that's trusting in works. And if you really dig in, it's pretty sloppy scripturally anyway to try and make that case. And we can do that. We have God's word. 
We can ask those questions. Was Abraham a Jew? Well, he didn't start out as one. He was just a guy. <laughs> he was just an old guy with an old barren wife that God gave this command, and he was obedient. Now, God changed his name to Abraham. He became the father of Israel, but he didn't start out Jewish. What about this question? This was a big one to the Judaizers. Was Abraham circumcised? Yes, he was. But it was when he was like 99 years old. It was many years after he first responded in obedience. Genesis chapter 17, verse 26 says, He and his son Ishmael were circumcised at the same time. So you've got to ask the question, did Abraham not receive God's favor until then when he was circumcised? No. God had saved him years before this act of circumcision. Well, then why was Abraham circumcised? What's the deal? I think this is solid biblically. It was a show of faith. It was a demonstration of faith for Abraham. It's just like we do with baptism as a New Testament ordinance. Baptism doesn't save us, so why do we get baptized? It's because we publicly get the chance to profess our faith in Christ, to identify with his death and burial and resurrection, and we do that before folks who hold us accountable. Now, I wouldn't recommend this as a timetable, but my story's a little like Abraham there. God drew me to himself when I was 26. I didn't get baptized until I was 36. <laughs> took 10 years before I was really convicted of, hey, that's something I need to do. I need to publicly identify with Christ. Well, then was I not saved till I was 36? Of course not. It's grace that saves us. It's not the symbol that saves us. We're saved the moment we put our trust in Jesus. One more tricky case the Judaizers might have made. What about this one? Did Abraham obey the law? That's kind of a trick question. He was definitely obedient, but he wasn't obedient to the laws of Moses that the Judaizers were so high on. Laws of Moses didn't even exist when God was telling Abraham's story. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8 reads that this promise from God to Abraham was that all the nations would be blessed through him because he had faith, because he was a believer. Mosaic law had nothing to do with that promise. It truly didn't even exist yet. It'd be another roughly 430 years before it existed. And we've already made this case. The purpose of the law is not to save anyway. What does the law do? It's just a diagnostic tool. It's the MRI for us. Jesus is the cure. So we can't run to the law. We can't run to the MRI to be cured. We've got to accept God's grace and put our faith in Jesus. I think Paul does a great job here of getting the Galatians' attention. I think his six questions are really solid. I think he uses Abraham as an example intentionally to refute the argument that these Judaizers were probably making, that they need to add some works to their faith like Abraham did. I'm sure Abraham was blessed because he was Jewish and obedient and faithful and circumcised, and Paul blows that up and he says, no, you just need to have faith like Abraham did. That's why he's called Father Abraham because of his faith. The faith produces all those other things. It's not the other way around. We don't really have time to flesh this out, but let me close with this one thing, because I think this is encouraging. And this is another great case for doing our homework through the week, because you can study this in the Bible on your own. I wouldn't want us to just come in, sit down for a while, and learn about Abraham and say, okay, yeah, the nations are blessed because of Abraham. We need to know that it was because of his great faith. And we also need to understand about Abraham that guy was a, a hot mess, just like we are. He had issues. Now, Abraham was an Old Testament saint, but he was also a guy who messed up. Sometimes we hear about people in the Bible, and, and for some reason, we want to elevate them. 
We assume they must be varsity guys. They made the Bible. We're all JV guys. We can do that today even with, with megachurch pastors and speakers, and, and we're not supposed to do that. Go back and read the book of Genesis. Listen in on the conversations that Abraham had with his wife, Sarah, who must have been an incredibly beautiful woman who was still hot when she was like 60 or 70-some-odd years old because Abraham says to her, hey, the king's going to see you, and he's going to want to kill me and take you for himself because you're smoking hot. Why don't you tell him you're my sister? Now, technically, she was his half-sister, but, but come on, she's your wife, Abraham. And Abraham does this twice in the Bible. I mean, Abraham may be on the varsity, but he's got issues. David, King David, we love him, the man after God's own heart. Man who slept with another man's wife and then had the guy killed. Moses led the people out of Egypt who killed the Egyptian guy in Exodus chapter 2. Just a few verses back here in Galatians, we see Peter, the leader of Christ's disciples. He basically forgets the gospel, <laughs> creates this big division. Did these heavyweight guys in the Bible earn their salvation through these good works that I just mentioned? Did they do more good than bad? Maybe that's why they got chosen. Here's the deal. There's no varsity and JV on God's kickball team. In this argument between faith and works for salvation, to be declared righteous, we don't want God to pick teams based on what we do. We don't. And here's the beauty. He doesn't. We can all be on the team. But not because we're great at anything. Simply because he is. And when we respond to the gospel by grace through faith in Jesus, then we understand grace. And we'll be put on his team. It's a guarantee. Let me pray. Father God, your grace is amazing. Thanks for the opportunity to get into your word and study it and try and grasp it and understand it. God, we don't want to have to try and earn our way into a relationship with you, the God of the universe. God, there's no way we could bridge that gap between you and us. But you love us and you desire to be with us, and you love us so much you made the way for us to be reconciled with you. And we didn't earn it, God. You, you did it out of your mercy and love. God, help us to continue to grow through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to continue to understand grace more. And God, have that impact our lives so we can go out and share the true gospel with everyone that we come in contact with. God, we love you so much. We give this time of worship to you. Just ask all those things in Jesus' name.